Good morning. Okay, good morning. Hey, just real quick, one announcement, and uh, we'll put the graphic on screen. Uh, the only uh, announcement that we have is July 23rd, uh, there on, that's Friday, July 23rd, uh, after 7 p.m., there is going to be a women's hangout. Uh, so all the women in the church are invited to that. Uh, it is going to be at uh, Kristen Rawls' house. So if you have any questions or you know, want to uh, find out more information, talk with Kristen, uh, and she can get you set up. Or you can probably also, there's a Connect table uh, out there, um, and you can uh, connect with, at the Connect table to get more information about that. Uh, if you're a visitor here this morning as well, we haven't done this in a while, but if you're a visitor here this morning, uh, in the seat back in front of you, there should be something called a Connect card. And if you want, go ahead and fill that out and then just drop that off at the Connect table on your way out this morning. We would love to uh, find out more about you, uh, find out more how we can pray for you, uh, and just serve you uh, as you're new here at the Oaks. Uh, we are going... Uh, we're continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and, uh, and today we have kind of an extended text. We have Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, taking us through chapter 6, verse 6. So Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 6, verse 6. And normally we would stand for the reading of the scriptures, but since it is an extended uh, text here this morning, you can go ahead and uh, keep your seats. So this is Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. 
Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot here in this text, and just so you're aware, we're not going to be able to be totally comprehensive uh, with this text here today. So we're just going to hone in on a, on a couple of key things and really dive in on, uh, on a couple of key verses and, um, and thoughts in the text here today in Ecclesiastes. We'll start with an illustration. Uh, there was a man by the name of Russell Herman who died in 1994. He was 67 years old, and he was a lifelong uh, carpenter. And when he died, uh, his will was one of the most staggering uh, wills uh, in terms of just what he was offering up in terms of his generosity with his wealth. So he had allotted for $2 billion to go to the city of St. Louis, $1.5 billion to go to the state of Illinois, $2.5 2.5 billion to go to the national forest system, and finally, six trillion to go to the government to pay off the national debt. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, okay, in spite of all of his quote-unquote generosity, uh, Russell Herman did not have that wealth. In fact, the only asset he had was a 1983 Oldsmobile. And while the delusion of the story uh, is, is interesting and perhaps a little bit funny, it's good for a laugh, the reality is that there's kind of a way in which we all have and share in this kind of delusion. In our own minds, we can have a perception about our wealth, the way that we handle our money, and the way in which we are quote-unquote generous, right, uh, that isn't actually based in reality either. Money and wealth are areas where we don't often uh, invite a lot of outside scrutiny. And therefore, the uh, ethics and morality of our handling of money often go completely unchecked. Money is distracting, right? Money is distracting. We're going to go ahead and show up a slide here. This is a a famous Renaissance painting uh, titled The Money Lender and His Wife. And it's by a Renaissance artist, and I'm going to butcher the name, but it's Quentin Macy's, Macy's, somebody more cultured than I would, would probably know that. Uh, but the money lender and his wife. And in this image here, we see the money lender, and he's, he's holding on to a scale in his hand. And uh, what you'll notice, what's really interesting is, you know, he's counting the money, and his wife is next to him. They're both dressed very nicely. They have nice clothes on. And she's got a Bible, which for that time, to have a Bible would have been in a very extravagant purchase. So she's a spiritual woman. She's a Christian. She's got her Bible opened. But, but notice what's happening. Is she reading her Bible? She's not. She's distracted. Right? The painter painted her distracted with the money. Even though she's got a Bible, she's got the opportunity to, to do something to kind of dive in spiritually to an extent that most common people didn't have. She's not doing that. She's distracted from the discipline of reading the Bible. She's distracted with the money. And then notice this is really interesting. You've got a mirror. You've got a mirror in the image. In which way is the mirror turned? It's turned outward. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the image that they're not able to look at themselves. They're they're not able to reflect 
on themselves and what they're doing. They're distracted with the money and they're not able to reflect and see their own image and who they are. It's a fascinating um, graphic. That Thank you for putting that up there. And oftentimes I think that maybe this is us, right? We walk in on a Sunday and we're privileged people who have probably multiple copies of the Bible. We're privileged to the extent that we can gather together as Christians. And yet, in spite of this enormous privilege that we have, we're distracted with the things that the world has to offer. And we take the mirror and we, we point it away from us so that we don't have to reflect on what we're doing with our money and what we're doing with our wealth. And this text here today kind of becomes the mirror for us this morning. And, and, and really, if we look at the scriptures, Jesus cracks down really hard on really only two kinds of people in his ministry. When Jesus was here on earth, he really only cracked down really hard on a couple of individuals. First, the religious, right? He cracked, he was pretty harsh on the religious, Jesus was. And he was also pretty hard on the rich, right? He went in and the, remember he, the angriest we ever see Jesus is when he goes into the temple, religious people, and then flips over the tables of the money changers, and so Jesus is really hard on people who are religious and rich. And here's the thing, if I'm honest with you, this makes me really uncomfortable to even be able to preach this text to all of us because here we are in church, right, the religious, and here we are in the United States of America, the wealthiest country in all of history, and for the most part, many of us in here have enjoyed relative comfort and ease comparatively speaking with the rest of the world and throughout all of history. And so uh, it's, an un- it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. I know that when people come to church, the last thing that they want to hear is a sermon on money. And there are probably other pastors that are really eager to uh, preach on money, but I can assure you that that is not uh, where I am at this morning. It, it, I'm uncomfortable with it as well. Uh, when, when I... Um, begin to to traffic in money, it's probably the same emotions that you guys feel, which is to feel a little bit guilty, to feel maybe a little bit angry or defensive, to try to justify things. There's a lot of emotions that get brought up when we begin to talk about money. But today we're confronted with the, the topic of money. And as we go through, as we've been going through Ecclesiastes, one of the things that you'll see is that the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, oftentimes, uh, deals in existential questions. So whereas I might ask you a question and say, what do you do for a living? Right? That would be just a straightforward question. What do you do for a living? The preacher in Ecclesiastes would ask things like, why do you do that for a living? What do you get out of doing that for a living? Do you find meaning in your job? And, and as Americans, I think we struggle with kind of the existential questions We would rather talk about what we're doing than why we're doing something. And so today, we're getting these same kinds of existential questions when it comes to money. And in effect, what the preacher and the author of Ecclesiastes is doing is he's asking us an implied existential question about money and wealth. And the question is this, is money, is wealth inherently good or is it inherently bad? That's kind of where, where he's coming at uh, this morning. Is, is money, is wealth inherently good, or is it inherently bad? And the answer is, 
Yes, no, maybe. It's gray. It's, it's nuanced. And that's how wisdom works. Uh, what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes is that wisdom requires not always just these clean black and white yes, no answers, that, that wisdom forces us to traffic in the gray areas of life, the nuance of life, the messiness of life. And so let's go ahead and take a, a dive in to see what Ecclesiastes does with this question. Is money, is wealth inherently good? Is it inherently bad? Let's, let's look at the nuance here. Well, the first thing that's obvious from reading this text as the preacher kind of goes to answer this existential question, is that money isn't necessarily inherently good or that it's inherently bad. But he does say that money is, and hear this, money is inherently dangerous. Money is inherently dangerous. And he kind of says this over and over and over again. Look at verse 10, uh, if you have your Bibles opened. Um, I can read it for you too. It doesn't have to be on the screen. Uh, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. In other words, if you fall in love with money, warning signs, it's not going to satisfy. The more you have, the more you're going to want. The more you have, the more you're not going to be satisfied with it. Verse 11, he says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. In other words, like as your wealth increases, so do responsibilities. You, you make more money and then you just see that money disappear and evaporate. And he says, in what advantage, in verse 11, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, the only advantage that money often provides is you can see it. I've got a lot of money. I've got a lot of possessions. But it doesn't really solve life's deepest problems. It doesn't really solve life's deepest questions. Right? Go think of uh, uh, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, right? Has, has billions of dollars solved the relational problems that they've had with their spouses? No. It didn't. Billions of dollars couldn't solve relational problems for them. That's what verse 11 is telling us. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The more you have, the more you worry about it. You might even lose sleep over the fact that you've got a lot of money. 13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Grievous evil that riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. The more you have, the more you become susceptible to your wealth uh, hurting you by holding on to it. Verse 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is father of a son but has nothing in his hand. In other words, everything you have can be easily lost. The more you have, the more you have the more you have to lose. 15, I mean, he keeps going. 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for all his toil that he may carry away in his hand. 16, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? In other words, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. None of us are going to show up in heaven with bags full of gold. 17, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, in anger. 
In other words, money can cause emotional stress and even physiological suffering, right? Anxiety to the point of where the body begins to actually break down and respond to the stress of money. So money, possessions, and wealth, he's saying there's inherent risks. There's an inherent danger in money. And uh, I was, I was uh, talking with, uh, with uh, Andy uh, on Monday, and he reminded me of a sermon that Pastor Matt preached uh, years ago, I think. And he said, money is a liar. And that's, that's true. Money is dangerous. Money is a liar. It offers to solve all of your problems. And to be fair, money can solve some problems. Right? You can pay your bills with money, but the problem with money is that it, for every problem that it solves, it, like as we just saw, it can create some other problems. And moreover, money might be able to solve some problems, but it's the problems that don't matter in the grand scheme of life. The problems that really matter to us can't be solved with money. Money can't save you. It doesn't give you right standing with God. In fact, Jesus said that it was harder for a rich man uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And so Jesus is saying here that money can become more than just a distraction and hindrance. It can, it can become detrimental to our spiritual lives. Money is dangerous. It consumes us. It asks more and more until there's nothing left. It's, it's deceptive. It's deceiving. If I was to say to you, I'm going to go ahead and uh, give you $100 million. Tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to have $100 million in your bank account. Are you going to be satisfied? Will that satisfy you? Do you believe that $100 million will satisfy you? And I think in our naivety, I say... And a lot of you are probably saying, if I woke up with $100 million in my bank account tomorrow, all of my problems would be solved, right? I think that's what a lot of us are thinking. Like, yes, I would be satisfied. All of my problems would be solved. Really? Are we that naive? Like, I can guarantee you that what most of us would do is immediately begin stressing out about what we were going to buy what we were going to do with the money, how we were going to save it, how we were going to try to preserve it. Maybe some of us that are very entrepreneurial-minded would begin to stress out about how we're going to take $100 million and turn it into $150 million or $200 million, right? That, that, that's, where, that's where we would go. Uh, you would absolutely not be satisfied with $100 million. And the fact that we think that that would be, happen shows us what a deceiver, what a liar Money can be. The overwhelming majority, like, the, have you ever seen like, and heard the stories of people who win the lottery? It's fascinating to see stories, and it's like a common thread to interview people who, who won the lottery, and some of them lose it all and some of them keep it, but a very common thread regardless is that many of them will say, I wish I had never won this money. It's destroyed my life. Like all of my friends became leeches and just wanted access to me for the money, it destroyed these relationships or I got too greedy and then I lost it all. Right? Money doesn't solve problems like we think it does. And, but the second that it lands in our hands, we, we grab hold tight of it and, uh, and then immediately begin dreaming how we can get more and do more. We see 
all of the upside of wealth and no downside. It's intoxicating. We get drunk on money and wealth. And then here shows up the preacher in Ecclesiastes, and he's a buzzkill. <laughs> it's a moment of sobriety for us where he says, hey, this is dangerous. Watch out. You don't know the power of what it is that you're handling. You need to be sober-minded about this. Lou Allen mentioned about the, the, the number of Bible verses that are in the Scripture about various topics. And actually, there's about 500 Bible, uh, verses in the Bible that pertain to issues of faith. And there's about 500 verses in the Bible, approximately, that pertain to the issue of prayer. And then there's about 2,000 verses in the Bible that pertain to the issue of, or the topic of money. And the overwhelming majority of those verses don't paint money and wealth in a good light. Jesus, for example, says in Matthew, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He also says, uh, Jesus also said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Apostle Paul said in his letter to Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, Paul writes, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The Apostle James writes, Now listen, you who are rich, us, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Woo! Jesus and his apostles aren't exactly giving a glowing recommendation of money and wealth, right? Ecclesiastes, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, isn't exactly giving a glowing recommendation of dedicating your life to, to pursuing wealth. And I, I think there's a way, there's like this American mindset, Christian American mindset in us that says, well, yeah, I mean, it's dangerous, but we're Christians. We can handle fire, right? We can handle the fire. We're, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. And we are forgetting that money is dangerous, that it's a liar. And just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're exempt from the risks and the dangers of money. What it does mean as Christians is that we should, at the very least, be open and receptive to the idea that money could be a snare to our souls, right? The wise person's relationship with money is one where the foundation is skepticism towards money, heeding the dangers that we see here uh, that money presents, a pessimism towards uh, money and wealth uh, and the promises that we know it can't deliver. And just as on the move here, a couple of quick points of application on this. What do we do then to guard ourselves against the dangers of money? What, what do we do? 
Uh, well, the scriptures have a lot of things. The scripture talks about a lot of things, but one of the f- kind of formative liturgies, uh, formative like things that we can do, we talk about liturgies here at the Oaks. And just to kind of help explain what that is, a liturgy is, is, a, is a work of the, per- of the people, but it's, it's a spiritual discipline, something that's done regularly in order to form us into disciples of Christ. And so we have things that we do every single week like we come here and we sing, right? Because we're not just supposed to give our heads to God. We're supposed to give our hearts, our souls, like our whole selves. And so we sing. We're, we're offering up the whole person to, uh, in worship uh, to God. And that's a formative liturgy. Uh, and, and one of the other formative liturgies that we do is we ask our members, not, not, uh, not guests, but we ask members to give to, to, as a regular liturgy, as an act of worship. And so... Uh, so yeah, we want to form a liturgy uh, to guard against the dangers of having money. And, and for us, what that looks like is, hey, we regularly offer up with open hands what we have in generosity to the church, to each other, to those who need it, to family, to friends, whoever may be in need. We, uh, we offer that up regularly as, a, uh, as something that checks our hearts, keeps us... Uh, you know, running away, fleeing from the dangers of wealth and money. And as a church, you know, many of us are kind of emerging in our professional fields where, um, you know, when we started out the Oaks about 12, 13, 14 years ago or so, uh, there was, it was like high school students and like college, people in college, right? That's like who we were. Everybody was broke. <laughs> and, uh, but now, uh, and we didn't have margins for much, there just there's not not much margins, but now many of us are getting to the point in our lives where uh, we're in our professional fields and we're getting a little bit more, a little bit better access to better salaries, better income, more money, more wealth. Our margins have grown, right? And maybe we would ask the question, "Hey, I'm beginning to make more money. I, you know, I want to make sure that it it's not." Um, my master or a detriment to my soul, what should I do? Beyond just, you know, giving and being generous, what else should I do? And I think just a really point, a point of practical application is to scale our generosity before we scale our lifestyle. Because what often happens when you get that raise uh, or the new job that offers you X amount of dollars more than you had before, we, our minds immediately go to the realm of, what that money is going to be able to afford for us, right? Our minds immediately go to, cool, now that I'm making more money, I could have this or I could have that. And I, like, we immediately go to, to what that money can offer us. And maybe, right, our minds should immediately go more towards, awesome, I'm making more money. How will I scale my generosity first towards others before I scale my lifestyle? before I, you know, uh, invest in myself. Because oftentimes what happens is we, we pursue those other things and there's nothing inherently wrong with buying bigger houses or buying nicer cars. Like those things aren't necessarily wrong in a, of themselves. But what we often do is scale those things to capacity to the point where it's eroded our margins for generosity and money begins to become uh, more deceptive to us. So being willing to hold our money open-handedly and generosity and being uh, willing to scale our generosity before we scale our lifestyle. And then the last thing is just accountability. 
just accountability with each other, right? Like, I don't know what you give here at the church, and I don't want to know. As a pastor, uh, I'm trying to, you know, keep my distance from knowing what any of you give. That's the way that uh, I want it to be. I don't know if it's $1 or $10,000. I wouldn't have a clue. And I don't want to know, but someone should know. Someone should know. You should have someone in your life with whom you can be transparent enough where they can call you out on your, if you have a lack of generosity. Because if there is not anyone, I know that for me, if there's not someone in my life that can say, like, wait a second, you're, you're not giving to the poor, you're not giving to the church, then I can guarantee you that I'm probably not going to, right? Or it'll just be like a token, a token gift here and there to ease my conscience. But it won't actually be a spiritual discipline in my life. I won't actually be generous. So money is so dangerous, so addictive, so deceitful that we need to employ the help in the eyes of others to make sure that we aren't letting it get the best of us. So those are just some practical ways to hedge against the dangers of money so that money doesn't become uh, the snare to our soul. Well, if money is so dangerous, we've got to be asking this question, well, if money is so dangerous, why don't, as Christians, we just swear it off, right? Why don't we just say, get rid of it? Is that what Ecclesiastes, is that what the preacher says here? Well, in fact, no. Interestingly enough, the text goes on and he almost seemingly, Sorry, there's Siri, seemingly co <laughs> completely contradicts, the, the text goes on to seemingly almost contradict everything else that he just said. Look, at, look in uh, chapter 5, verse 18. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good, and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. What? Now he's saying, wait a second, riches and wealth are the gift of God to you. Make the most of what God has given to you. Like if God has blessed you with lots of money and possessions, be blessed is what he's saying. And it's like, wait a second. Preacher, this is confusing. Is, is money dangerous or is it a blessing? Which one is it? And well, it's both. It's both. Right? It's, it, is, it is dangerous, but it's also a blessing. And really, what he's showing us is something that we all kind of already know to be true. That money is just like a lot of the other gifts that God has given us in life that are blessings, but also have dangerous sides to them. Alcohol. Right? The Bible talks a lot about alcohol. Most of, the Bible, most of the verses in the Bible that talk about alcohol say that it's a blessing. Okay, So we don't have, as a church, anything against the blessing of alcohol. That said, the Bible also talks about the dangers of alcohol, that, that alcohol can destroy people's lives, and it does. Alcohol is incredibly dangerous, and we would be really naive to say that alcohol was harmless, that it was just a blessing. We have to hold both of these realities in tension. Other gifts that God has given us, sex. 
Sex is good, amen, right? We've got a lot of kids back there. Like you guys, don't pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about, right? Sex is a blessing. Sex is a good thing that God has given us. And yet, there are dangers. Like that, the, the, our, our world is a mess because of issues in sexuality. Food, food is good. Like if we don't eat food, we die, right? So it's kind of important. And yet food can also be something that can be incredibly harmful to us. These are all gifts from God, all gifts from God. And yet God has given us helpful boundaries, helpful boundaries. And outside of those boundaries, these gifts can become really dangerous to us. When we go to these things to try to satisfy ourselves in an ultimate capacity, when we self-medicate on the gifts rather than going to the giver. And here, here's the thing. Here's the thing about abusing the gifts of God, whether it's food, sex, alcohol, or in this case today, money. Every time that we take those gifts and make them ultimate in our life, make them the, the thing that we're striving after most in our life, or putting them above Christ. Or, or pursuing them outside of the biblical boundaries that God has given us. Anytime that we do that, we have destroyed our ability to truly enjoy it. We take the gift that God has given us, the blessing that God has given us, and we sabotage our ability to enjoy it. And so in effect, what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying here today is, hey, if you put money in its proper place, if you steward it, well, within the confines, within the boundaries of what God has given us, you're actually going to enjoy it. You'll see the blessing that money is uh, in the same way that we uh, enjoy the other gifts that God has given us. Most within the boundaries that God has given us. But the second that we break out of those boundaries that God has given us for those gifts, we immediately uh, diminish our joy in those things. And we, become, we can even become enslaved to those things. And the very things that were given to us as a blessing, as a gift, can become the very things that end up wreaking all kinds of havoc and turmoil and heartache in our lives. Uh, when I was in college, I had uh, an uncle who uh, spent a bunch of money. Uh, he, he, had, he had access to some money. He was very generous with his money. And, um, but he went out and he splurged and he bought a Pontiac Trans Am. Now, I know that that's not a cool car now, but it was like in 2000, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but he had done some things to this Pontiac Trans Am that made it special, even by today's standards. So he had dropped uh, like a big block Corvette engine in the thing. And he'd put like racing rims on it and like these big fat tires on the back. It was like supercharged. And it didn't do good uh, handling around corners, uh, but zero to 60 was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. And so he shows up with this car that he's done all this, spent all this money on, all this work on. He shows up at a family get-together. And so I'm outside, you know, with the men, and we're admiring this cool car, you know. Uh, and it's just amazing. It's really cool. It's a work of art. And uh, so we're outside looking at this beautiful car, and off, uh, there's a gravel driveway uh, that we're all kind of parked on. And the kids had decided that... Um, it would be a great idea to, be, to play near this car and to get handfuls of gravel and rock. And they decided that it'd be really cool to throw it into the air right near the car 
And they did this, and so as we're standing there, the kids all grab handfuls of these stones. You see where this is going. Throw it up in the air right over the car, and it rains down like hail on this beautiful, you know, Pontiac uh, Trans Am. And I winced in anticipation of the murder that was sure to follow. And, uh, and so somebody quickly, like, went and got the kids and, like, escorted them away. And I'm like, oh, man, like, he has got to be so upset. But he seemed, like, pretty calm. He, like, walked over and was kind of picking up the rocks off the hood and off the, you know, off the car and just kind of tossing it back into the driveway. And he seemed pretty, pretty calm about it. And so I, like, asked him, I was like, aren't you furious? Aren't you mad? Like, how upset are you right now? And uh, he turned to me and with just absolute calm in his eyes, with no anxiety at all, like nothing had happened. He looked me straight in the eye and he said, Eric, it's just a thing. It's just a thing. And then he tossed me the keys and said, hey, go take it out for a drive and see, see what it can do. Uh, yes, sir, right? And they're like, what? Well, my uncle showed me uh, that day is that our possessions and money are best enjoyed like this with an open hand, right? He had, he had already, determined, already determined that his things, his possessions, weren't going to be cause for heartache and sorrow and anger and bitterness and stress. He had already determined that he was going to hold his possessions his, the things that he owned with an open hand. And so we, we make, what we see here is that we make the most, we enjoy the blessings the most uh, when we receive what God gives us and we don't hold on to it with tight-fistedness, where we're, we lack in generosity or we go to it to become our ultimate joy and significance. We make the most of what God gives us by keeping a really loose grip on it all. Now, notice something else here in the text, though, before we wrap up. In, in uh, chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. So God has given them the power to enjoy them. And then he says it again in verse 6, uh, or in chapter 6, verse 2, he says, he talks about the man who God has given wealth and possessions and honor so that he doesn't lack anything, yet God has not given him the power to enjoy them. And, and what this highlights here for us is that the world uh, that God has given us is full of these gifts. God has given us a world that is full of gifts, but the power to enjoy those gifts doesn't lie in the gift itself, does it? It comes from the giver. And this is where we get it so wrong. We often uh, hold these things up in worship and give our lives to them because we think that the gift itself is the thing that has the power to fulfill us, the power to bless us instead of the giver. Wealth and possessions are powerless in of themselves to bring us ultimate joy and satisfaction. What the preacher uh, is recognizing in, in, that, when he, in uh, chapter 5 or chapter 6 is you can have two people in the exact same scenario financially, right? You can have a person over here who has 
a certain amount of wealth, and a person over here who has the exact same amount of wealth. And this person over here can be living in such a way where their wealth has become something that stresses them out, causes them anxiety, they're, they're, they're hoarding their money, it's, it's, it's giving them the sleepless nights because of their posture towards it. Right? They're, they're looking to extract something from their money and from their wealth that can only be found in the giver, not the gift. And so they're, they're miserable. And then you can have a person over here with the same amount of wealth, and they're, they're enjoying it. They're satisfied with what God has given them. And it's completely about their posture towards money and towards the giver as opposed to what God has uh, blessed each of them respectively. The, the one person is able to enjoy it instead of sabotaging the, their enjoyment uh, with false expectations. When God, yeah, when, uh, uh, when we hold our money in generosity, see it as the gift uh, that God has given us, offer it up for others to share and enjoy, we maximize our own joy. We're going to transition now to our time of communion. Um, you should have gotten a little cup like this, and uh, there's a top layer that you can kind of peel off, okay? And that exposes uh, this little wafer, which is a representation of uh, bread and Christ's body broken for us. And then we've got the cup, which represents Christ's blood shed for us. And this is a really important thing for us. This is another formative liturgy for us as a church to constantly and weekly remember what was it that paid for our right standing with God. What covers you? What paid for you to be right with God? Was it money? No. It was the body and blood of Jesus. This is what paid for our debts. Not cash, but the body and blood of Christ. And so Christ, uh, when he was with his disciples in the upper room, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body poured out for you. And he took the the cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for you. And so we remember, as we take communion today, that money is not the giver. Jesus is. Money is not our joy. Jesus is. Money is not our identity. Jesus is. Money is not our unifying bond as a church. Jesus is. Money is not our security. Jesus is. Money is not our hope. Jesus is. And money is not our salvation. Jesus is. We're going to pray. The band's going to come forward. And uh, whenever you're ready, you can take communion. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I am often enamored with the gifts of this world. Um, it's definitely uh, um, a weak point for me spiritually, Father. I confess that I am just so enamored with possessions and, and the, the joy that I think I can extract from your gifts rather than going to you as the giver. And um, Father, I just pray that today the text, the scriptures that we were in, the sermon, as the Spirit pours out on us today, that it sets a foundation, uh, a posture towards our money and wealth today that changes the way that we look at things. 
Father, I pray that your spirit would continue to work in my heart and convict me of the ways in which I go to things and stuff and money more than I go to you. And I, I pray as a church that we would begin actively subverting the dangers of money, that we would be generous uh, towards each other, generous towards the church, generous towards the poor, that we would hold our possessions loosely, that we would be able to say when we experience loss, it's just a thing. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.